Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is a recording of a live online event, a lecture by Dr. Anthony Daniels, also known as Theodore Dalrymple, and a discussion to follow that took place on January 14th, 2021. Dr. Daniels' lecture and the ensuing discussion is on one of the great Russian novels, Turgenev's 1862 Fathers and Sons. Turgenev is an amazing observer, and though I've read him only in English, a breathtakingly beautiful writer. Also, it was this novel that popularized the word nihilism, which I think gives you a glimpse into how directly this book speaks to our own time and culture. We had people join us from all over the world for this lecture and discussion, from five continents, people listening in and sending in comments and questions from Brazil and Barbados, from Kenya and Indonesia, and from all across Europe and North America. The internet is a strange and wonderful thing. We meet across places just as we meet Turgenev across time. We'll be holding online events like this regularly, and you can sign up for updates for those on our website at www.ralston.ac. Also, if you enjoy this podcast, we'd be grateful if you'd leave us a rating or a review or share it with others who you think might enjoy it also. I won't give any further introduction to Dr. Daniels here because I introduce him before his lecture, and a wonderful lecture it is. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Thank you very much for joining us today. My name is Stephen Blackwood, and I have the great pleasure to welcome you all here to our first online lecture with Dr. Anthony Daniels. I'm not going to make by any means a long introduction here, but I do want to make sure our tech is working and make a few introductory remarks. That music you've just heard was uh, Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, that's BWV 565, if you want to look it up. Uh, it was the fugue from that piece, and it was it's actually was written for the organ, but it's played by uh, on piano by Gerhard Opitz. It's readily available uh, uh, for download in various places. Anyway, that's the music we use in our podcast. I hope you, you enjoyed it. Um, I uh, want to make just a couple of quick comments here. I first want to say that we we may face uh, all the usual uh, tech toils and tribulations that we have all I know gone through in the midst of, of COVID. Dr. Daniels is at his apartment in Paris tonight, uh, but because of the lockdown and because of the extraordinary internet traffic at this moment in time, uh, despite our best efforts, we could have a, uh, a little bit of interruption if that happens. We've pre-recorded the lecture and we will, with a small delay, pick up wherever he's left off. So thank you just for um, sticking with us. I know we've all gone through these things in the midst of COVID um, many times. On that note, I, I really just want to say something very simple by way of introduction to this series, and that is that I don't think I'm the only one that feels that as a culture, we maybe are standing on the brink of quite bad things and that we need perhaps to take a step back and to think and listen and perhaps to explore where we might find some illumination uh, from those who've faced perhaps similar things in the past. It may also be that we're standing on the brink of wonderful things, um, but we need to think about it all. So anyway, uh, with all that said, 
I want to introduce my friend, Dr. Anthony Daniels, who has often written under the pseudonym Theodore Dalrymple. He's written all in all, I think about 30 books. He's been immensely prolific. Uh, he's, a, he's a doctor in the sense of a physician. He spent many years working as a, as a prison doctor. His reflections out of that time, at least some of his reflections, were published in a book that uh, really made, uh, made some serious waves for the clarity and beauty and honesty of its insight. That book is called uh, Life at the Bottom. I don't know if you can see this here. I highly recommend it to all of you. Um, it's not just any book that has Thomas Sowell saying on the front cover that this book is as fundamental for understanding the world we live in as the three R's. That's Thomas Sowell making a comment on life at the bottom, the worldview that makes the underclass by, it's written under the, the name Theodore, Theodore Dalrymple. And uh, not to presume where this conversation will go, but I don't think it takes uh, a great leap of logic to see that the role of ideas in the shaping of the underclass that uh, Dr. Daniels describes in life at the bottom is uh, a, a huge theme in, Turgenev's fathers and sons, uh, the 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 relation between ideas and uh, character or life, uh, the, that ideas in short have consequences. So we're going to be thinking about some of those ideas today. The format of our this event the, this afternoon or evening or morning, wherever you happen to be in the world, is going to be that I will momentarily turn things over to Dr. Daniels, who will uh, give a lecture that lasts about forty minutes. Uh, that will that will run straight through. After that, we will then turn to a conversation in which uh, Tony and I will 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 go back and forth with some ideas and thoughts about the book. I will uh, perhaps read a few passages for the benefit of those of you who perhaps haven't had a chance to read it yet. And we will, of course, take uh, questions from all of you uh, whom we have the pleasure of having with us today. Such an amazing and sort of vertiginous and odd thing to think that we're now in some sense as human beings together in our separate places uh, in this moment on the internet. Who knows um, what we can make of these technologies, but we're damn determined to try and do our best. Um, so we will then take some questions from the audience in the midst of that discussion, and it will go for as long as it goes. I know some of you may be on your way to work or on your way home or have other commitments. Um, you may be in your cars. It's an amazing thing. We have hundreds of people here. Uh, just drop off when you need to drop off. This recording will be made available subsequently for uh, distribution. So if you don't catch it all today and you'd like to, you can catch the rest of it later. But there's no set end time. We'll just go until the conversation comes to a natural end and leave it at that. Uh, with that, I'm now going to turn things over to Dr. Daniels, and I look forward to seeing you all uh, after his lecture. Uh, Dr. Tony Daniels, Theodore Dalrymple, welcome very much. Uh, thank you, uh, Stephen. Well, uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure and an honor to be able to speak to you uh, here today, uh, here being I'm not quite sure where, of course, uh, but it would have been a greater pleasure if I'd been able to do it in uh, person, of course, and not uh, remotely. Um, 
let's hope that one day it will be possible uh, again to attend uh, convivial meetings and uh, lectures and seminars in person rather than through uh, the miracles of uh, through the miracles of uh, technology even uh, without covid uh, the western world has been going through turbulent times economically socially uh, politically and uh, culturally perhaps all times are turbulent and we just happen to be so constituted that we always think that our own times are the most turbulent times there have ever been and we believe that there were periods uh, which seem to us to have been uh, placid and peaceful but they never did of course to the people who lived through them nevertheless we still think that there are periods that we are pleased to call uh, normal. That is to say, where most important questions had been settled and all problems seemed to have a solution, at least in theory. And uh, differences were relatively, between people were relatively minor. Past travails, however, illuminate uh, present travails. Historical analogies, of course, are never exact, which is why they're analogies rather than repetitions. And the lessons of the past are always disputable. Moreover, there is no human experience, either personal or historical, uh, from which the wrong conclusions cannot uh, be drawn. Perhaps one of the ironies of the present conjuncture is that while multiculturalism is extolled and is almost an official orthodoxy, so many people lack historical imagination and uh, cannot enter mentally into a world in which people have a different scale of values uh, from their own. The past for them is not another country uh, where they do things differently. It is the same country where they did things worse and had much worse ideas. Karl Marx was uh, quite right when he said that men make their own history, but not just as they please. Uh, from this well-expressed truism, however, he drew the false conclusion that there existed historical inevitability. In his view, men could have free will only if they were free of all constraining circumstances. Uh, but this is not only to invoke an impossibility, but to mistake the nature of infinity. It does not follow from the fact that there are some choices that are closed to me, for example, I can't become uh, King of England, that the number of choices before me is not infinite. A grammar limits what can be meaningfully said, but it does not eliminate the infinitude of what can be said. Well, the great writer uh, Ivan Turgenev was an exact contemporary of Karl Marx, he was born and died in the same years as Karl Marx, that is to say 1818 and 1883. And this, these were not the only parallels in their lives. They both came under the influence of Hegelianism in Berlin when they were students, and they were both in Brussels uh, when the revolutions of 1848 uh, broke out. They both knew uh, the Russian anarchist uh, Bakunin and were close friends with him, though they both later broke from him. Uh, they were both at home in several languages. But as far as I know, they never met. And though Turgenev was born into the Russian aristocracy, his, acquaintance with, his acquaintanceship with 
uh, actual, real oppression, in this case by his mother of the peasants, whom, as a serf owner, she held as property, and whom she often treated abominably and always arbitrarily, was far greater than Marx's. Uh, the latter hated oppression in the abstract and developed an equally abstract doctrine uh, to overcome it, which eventually took oppression to new heights, or perhaps I should say depths. But Turgenev, no doubt, both because of his uh, temperament and his personal acquaintanceship with, uh, with uh, oppression, hated it uh, viscerally, while remaining clear-sighted about the many possible forms that it could take and the many circumstances in which it could arise. He was not a doctrinaire and he envisaged no utopias, quite the reverse. His most famous work, uh, though all his novels, his short stories and essays were excellent and have never been out of print, uh, was Fathers and Sons, published in 1861, which was the year of the emancipation of the serfs in Russia and a year before the uh, emancipation decree in the United States. It's often said that Turgenev's first published prose work, uh, Sketches from a Hunter's Album, uh, which was read by uh, both the emperor and the empress, hastened or brought forward uh, the emancipation of the serfs, though no doubt that would have occurred in due course anyway. In Fathers and Sons, the son of a small landowner, the son called Arkady Kazanov, who's the son of Nikolai Kazanov, returns home to his father's isolated small land holding after completing his university degree. He arrives with his close friend and mentor, Bazarov, a student of natural sciences and an aspiring doctor, who is of somewhat uh, lower social class than Arkady, being the son of an army surgeon, uh, and who is, as it were, a prodromal uh, revolutionary or a revolutionary type. Bazarov is a complete rationalist, that is to say, someone who accepts no authority other than that of his own reasoning and the evidence of his own eyes, on any subject whatsoever. He is a kind of logical positivist, avant la lettre, and the only kind of knowledge that he believes in uh, is uh, that which is provided by scientific experiment, uh, though in fact he is scientistic rather than scientific. He regards poetic utterance and even music as worthless and meaningless. Turgenev coined, or at least made current, uh, the word nihilist uh, through Bazarov's self-description uh, as such. Bazarov claimed to believe in nothing, belief being coterminous in his mind with superstition and irrationality, and hence the term nihilist. Though, of course, it is impossible for metaphysical reasons to clear human minds of all uh, beliefs and presuppositions whatsoever. And in any case, science is not straightforwardly a body of indubitable and positive uh, established truths, as Bazarov appears to think that it is. In this, rather ironically, given his insistence on thinking for himself, he is a follower of the rather crude German positivist materialism uh, in vogue at the time, uh, Buchner, 
being uh, the most famous of them. And of course, it's not easy for anyone entirely to think for himself. In fact, it's impossible. It is the conflict between Bazarov's philosophy and the inevitable exigencies of human life that are the theme, at least to the modern reader, of this great book. Bazarov comes to a tragic end, uh, dying of typhus contracted from performing a post-mortem on a person who has died of this disease. And Turgenev's uh, clinical description of the disease, incidentally, is very accurate. At his death, Bazarov realises the insufficiency of the whole philosophy by which he has tried to live. He is a man of great probity in that respect. But alas, by then, it is too late. He has fallen in love and uh, is prey uh, to emotions far stronger than his rationalism. But his death, of course, precludes any satisfactory end to his uh, love affair. His friend Kazanov is uh, dazzled by Bazarov's uh, superior intelligence, and even more, perhaps, by the certitude with which he holds his opinions. He has become Bazarov's disciple or acolyte, but he is not uh, made of the stern, single-minded stuff of Bazarov. He's a natural follower uh, rather than a leader. His weakness and vacillation, in fact, is his salvation, at least as far as his own happiness is concerned. He's not the kind of man any more than was Turgenev, uh, to follow a line of argument and cleave to it, even if it led to a horrible conclusion. Turgenev's own vacillations extended not only to political or philosophical matters, but to personal ones also. His only real emotional commitment for most of his adult life was to Pauline Viado, who was an opera singer of Spanish descent, married to a man called Louis Viado, whom uh, Turgenev uh, followed around Europe almost like a lapdog, uh, and with whom he actually lived in a menage à trois, both in uh, Germany and in France, uh, for many years. Fathers and Sons is a novel of ideas, but unlike the characters uh, in Bernard Shaw's plays of ideas, who often resemble ventriloquist puppets under Shaw's control rather than real living human beings, the characters in the novel express their ideas in a way that is indissolubly linked with or expressive of their character. Though the ideas that they express are fully of their time, a time which, as we shall see, uh, speaks to our own uh, more than a century and a half later, to a surprising extent, given all the historical changes that have taken place in the meantime. In short, Turgenev's novel has the feel of lived reality with all the ambiguities and inconsistencies that anyone not in the grip of an ironclad ideology uh, will recognise. It is Turgenev's temperamental vacillation that permits him to see all sides of the situation, though, of course, I don't mean to imply that all vacillators are Turgenev's. The heart of the novel, as far as the ideas are concerned, occurs in chapter 11. In this chapter, Bazarov has an argument with Pavel Kazanov, Arkady Kazanov's paternal uncle, who also lives in the house. Uncle Pavel despises hates and perhaps fears Bazarov from the very first, from their very first meeting, and is aware of Bazarov's disdain or even contempt for him. 
he is determined to have a quarrel with him, as if that would in some way clear the air as the storm does in Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony. Uncle Pavel is an aristocratic drone, uh, which was in some sense what Turgenev feared himself uh, to have been. Indeed, there are parallels between the author's life and the character's life, though they are not exact, as one would expect from a, a literary artist of Turgenev's calibre. Pavel Kazanov, for example, has had an unsatisfactory love affair uh, with a woman, Princess R, whom he has followed round Europe with dog-like devotion, uh, much as Turgenev followed Pauline Viedo. Though in the end Princess R dies, uh, and she's mad when she dies, and Uncle Pavel, unlike Turgenev, retires from life permanently, licking his emotional wounds and uh, living on his brother Nikolai's estate. Incidentally, the uh, difficulties that Nikolai experiences in running his estate, many of them consequent upon the soft-heartedness and the advantages taken of him by crafty and dishonest peasants, parallel those that Turgenev himself experienced in running his estate, from which he derived an income throughout his life, much of which he spent in Western Europe. Turgenev was aware that his literary activities were possible only because of the labour of his peasants and may have felt considerable guilt about that. In a way, Pavel is a victim of his own good fortune. An exceptionally handsome man, with at least in youth a natural charm, he does not readily have to struggle to make his way. Again, there, is, there are parallels with the actual life of Turgenev. At first, Pavel goes through life like a hot knife through uh, butter, but too easy success too early in life, uh, at least in the social sphere, is bought at the expense of failure to strive for anything or even to appreciate that there is a need to uh, strive for something. Thus, together with his disappointed grand passion, the one of his life, he is set up for a life of pointless, if not altogether unpleasant, uh, existence. Uh, he is both fastidious and punctilious. He continues to dress as a dandy, as for uh, drawing rooms in aristocratic Petersburg though he lives in the utmost rural isolation from society. And of course, given the vast extent of Russia, that is very isolated indeed. He is careful with his ties, his collars, his coats, his hair and his whiskers, which he perfumes. He follows English fashions of the time. His hands are carefully manicured and of course are free from any taint of manual activity. He is intelligent and cultivated, reads German, and frequently uses uh, French expressions, as if they came more naturally to his mind uh, than Russian, as the best way to express his thoughts. He is, uh, in the circumstances, as exotic as a hothouse pineapple in a cold climate. As for his moral qualities, one could not say that he was either a very good or a very bad man, unless, of course, you take... Bazarov's view uh, that uh, to live essentially on the labour of others is very bad. And of course, Turgenev himself did live on the labour of others uh, for much of his life. 
The conflict between Mazarov and Uncle Pavel is, of course, partly generational. In fact, Nikolai and Pavel are not very old, at least by modern standards, being only in their early 40s. But of course, people aged more quickly in those days, and Turgenev himself thought he was old uh, by the age of 42. Furthermore, not all generational conflict is political in nature. Whether intergenerational friction, misunderstanding, or conflict is an inevitable part of the human condition is not a question that I can go into uh, uh, at the moment or at any time, because I uh, have no knowledge of all human societies. But it is sufficient for our purposes that such conflict is by no means uncommon uh, with us. As the old shepherd puts it in The Winter's Tale, I would there were no age between 16 and 3 and 20, or that youth would sleep out the rest. Uh, for there is nothing in between but getting wenches with child, wronging the ancient tree, stealing, fighting. And Shakespeare knew whereof he spoke, of course, did he not get Anne Hathaway with child at the age of 18. When Arkady arrives home from the university, Turgenev very succinctly draws attention to one of the small tragedies of human existence, namely that children often mean more to their parents than parents mean to their children. There's an inevitability about this, at least in societies where children are expected to make their own way in life. On uh, Arkady's arrival, Turgenev tells us Nikolai Petrovich appeared to be far more excited than his son. He seemed a little flurried and overcome with shyness, the kind of shyness, in fact, uh, that hides an extremity of emotion. Uh, youth is often thoughtless towards age, that is to say, cruel without meaning to be. Uh, when just after his arrival, Arkady remarks on the sweetness of the air at home, Nikolai Petrovich, his father, says, of course you were born here, so everything is bound to strike you uh, with a special... Arkady interrupts him, saying, but papa, what difference does it make where a person was born? Still, the father begins, no, continues Arkady, with the certainty uh, that is born of inexperience. It makes absolutely no difference. And Nikolai Petrovich uh, looks at him uh, sideways. Note how deftly this is done and how much it actually suggests. As we are soon to learn, Arkady has long fallen under the spell of the rationalist Bazarov, who would say something like this if confronted with a father who said what Arkady's father said. If the air of a place is sweet, it is precisely as sweet as it is, irrespective of where one was born. To say anything else would be to give in to abominable, irrational superstition or sentimentality. The quality of the air is the same for the stranger and the native. This, of course, is a crude kind of uh, rationalism that re re requires that we ignore the very common if not necessarily universal attachment, that people formed the place of their birth and childhood without necessarily claiming that place to be the most beautiful in the world. We love where we have been raised, partly perhaps 
for its beauty, though many people are nostalgic for places that are very far from beautiful, in fact, uh, quite the reverse, uh, but much more because it is ours. It has a vital connection with our lives and our past. If we have been happy in childhood, we value where we were raised. But in Bazarov's philosophy, we should value places, if we should value anything at all, according to a strict, equal, and objective criterion. But human beings are not like this, and cannot be like this. Though Arkady thinks, as Bazarov's disciple, that he himself ought to be like this. Arkady clearly inflicts pain on his father without wishing to do so, through the callowness of youth rather than through malice. His father hopes that Arkady, uh, having come home for a long uh, time, uh, having come home, will stay for a long time. Arkady's professed lack of attachment to place removes one reason why he might do so, and thus his father foresees that he will not stay long. And this, of course, dashes his hopes and gives him pain. There's nothing political in all this. Such scenes are enacted and such pain inflicted every day because children inevitably come to make their own lives, at least in non-traditional societies, and separate themselves from their parents. It is one of the prices we pay for freedom of the individual. Implicitly, then, this is a tragic situation which is to say that there is no solution, least of all a political solution, to the suffering that is caused. Not all desirable things in life, uh, for example, the freedom of children to make their own lives and the desire of parents uh, to remain close to their children, are achievable at the same time. Utopianism, a permanent temptation of the young, and of those who decline to acknowledge the complexities and ambiguities of life, is excluded. And this is important because political utopianism was a growing phenomenon in Turgenev's Russia, as perhaps it is in our countries today. But the conflict between Uncle Pavel and Bazarov, besides being generational, is of a quite different order from Arkady's disappointment of his father and his political, ideological, philosophical, and above all, cultural as well. What is astonishing is that despite the very different social, political and economic circumstances of today, one can easily imagine such arguments in the households of any contemporary Western uh, society or country, where such arguments might break out over any number of subjects, and any one of which uh, might call into question the underlying assumptions and whole way of life that the older generation has hitherto taken for granted. One has only to think of the uh, upheavals in such homes that, for example, demands for the adoption of strict vegetarianism or veganism might cause, or alternatively discussions over the Black Lives Matter movement, to imagine the potential uh, for bitterness and dispute. Moreover, radicalism on one question is likely to be associated statistically, if not logically, uh, with the radicalism in another. Uh, one could call this another uh, form of intersectionality. Any, at any rate, mu mutual exasperation and misunderstanding is very common. 
The cultural dimension of the conflict is extremely important. In effect, Bazarov wants a cultural revolution. Even before his dispute with Uncle Pavel, he has remarked to Arkady on his father's fondness for reading poetry, which he considers useless, time-consuming, and even harmful in that it discourages the kind of activity that would lead to social progress and is therefore intrinsically conservative of something that should not be conserved. Here I must reiterate that uh, Turgenev was not an opponent of progress and was fully aware of its desirability, having been an effective opponent of the feudalism in the midst of which he had grown up. Arkady, still in complete thrall to his mentor Bazarov, finds his father reading Pushkin and gently replaces the book with one by Buchner, the militant 19th century German physiologist and materialist whom I've already mentioned, who insisted that there was nothing to man but force and matter, and also that his complete happiness would be found in the application of science. Pushkin, of course, was almost the founder of Russian literature and to this day is still considered the greatest poet of his language. So that to replace a, a book by him by a volume of Buchner might be considered at least symbolically the equivalent of pulling down a statue of George Washington in the United States. In recounting the dispute or skirmish, as Turgenev puts it, between Uncle Pavel and Bazarov, Turgenev does not load the dice. In other words, he does not reduce it to a question of good versus evil, allowing good to triumph by means of a conclusively superior argument. Both characters, Uncle Pavel and Bazarov, are flawed. There are between them not only intellectual differences, but those of temperament and class. Uncle Pavel, as I mentioned, being an aristocrat, and Bazarov uh, being of the non-landed, uh, lower middle class and intelligentsia that was just then emerging uh, in Russia and from whom uh, many revolutionaries were subsequently to be drawn. It is a tribute to Turgenev's art that we do not feel that any single factor uh, is completely determinant of either of his characters' views, which is to say that they are not just caricatures or an ideal type uh, brought on to illustrate a doctrine but real flesh and blood human beings. Hence, the discussion does not proceed in an orderly fashion, with one of the characters playing the part of uh, Socrates in a platonic di dialogue, uh, but proceeds rather by accusation and counter-accusation, by insinuation and counter-insinuation, as such um, discussions tend to do in reality. The acrimonious discussion begins when Bazarov, en passant, calls uh, a local landowner a third-rate aristocrat. Uncle Pavel uh, seizes the opportunity for a quarrel and accuses Bazarov of meaning that all aristocrats are third-rate, ex officio, because aristocracy is intrinsically productive of the third-rate. Bazarov hasn't actually said this in so many words, but we all know that words may carry a heavier load of implication and connotation than of literal meaning. Uncle Pavel defends aristocracy not so much as a social system, as an ideal. I am seeking, he says, to prove 
that uh, without a proper sense of pride, without a sense of self-respect, and these feelings are highly developed in the aristocracy, there can be no firm foundation for the social bien public, the social fabric. It is personal behavior that matters, my dear sir. A man's personal character must be as strong as a rock since everything is built up on it. Here is a reference to a question that even now has not been answered definitively and probably will never be answered definitively. Namely, do men make society or does society make men? This goes straight to the heart of the insoluble mystery of being a human being. What makes us? How do we become what we are? Bazarov is clearly of the party that believes in a society so perfect that no one will have to be good. Uncle Pavel is of the opposing view, and, is prob and it's probably true that the young in general are more inclined to the former, the older to the latter, hence the title of the book. Here I should perhaps add a personal note. I have sometimes had discussions with ardent young people who've reminded me of Bazarov, and in the course of which I've suddenly thought to myself, I am turning myself into Uncle Pavel. Uncle Pavel continues by uh, extolling self-respect. I'm very well aware that you are pleased to ridicule my habits, he says, my way of dressing, my punctiliousness, uh, in fact. But these very things proceed from a sense of self-respect, from a sense of duty. Yes, sir, of duty. I may live in the country, in the wilds of the country, but I do not let myself go. I respect myself as a human being. This self-praise, not surprisingly, gives Bazarov an opening. He says, interrupting, allow me, Pavel Petrovich, you say you respect yourself and you sit with your arms folded. What sort of benefit does that do the bien public? If you didn't respect yourself, you'd do just the same. There is obvious justice in uh, Bazarov's retort and reproach. Uncle Pavel's uh, punctiliousness clearly partakes of vanity and self-regard, and furthermore does not benefit anyone uh, other than himself when he happens to look in the mirror or parades himself in the house. There is no one to admire him or be grateful for his dandyism. And yet Bazarov's argument does not quite settle the matter, for there is no doubt that even if self-respect is not the true motive of Uncle Pavel's punctiliousness, yet self-respect is genuinely enough a virtue. Uncle Pavel's punctiliousness requires an effort, and in other circumstances, in a city, say, an effort made for the sake of others. Uh, or at least for the opinion of others. Someone with this kind of punctiliousness must at least be aware of others and try to enter their minds, to see things from their point of view. Contrary to what we might at first have thought, punctiliousness of the Uncle Pavel kind may result from a concern for others, not for the self, though of course it may not. And like any virtue uh, which is taken too far, it may become a vice. Compare this punctiliousness with the extreme casualness of the way in which we dress now. Do we not, by the way we dress, in effect say to others, I'm not going to make an effort just to please you. 
those of intellectual bent may add in their thoughts, my mind, my mind is focused on higher things than mere appearances. And thus an asocial mass sloppiness uh, results. So in this part of the argument, Uncle Pavel and Bazarov are both right and wrong. Sincere reflection on this ambiguity would tend to break down the binary political culture in which Russia was, to which Russia was increasingly becoming prey and which in the end was to produce such a catastrophe. Fifty years later, the Tsarist Russian minister of the interior was to say that the epileptics of the revolution were opposed by the paralytics of the government. And we see this ab ovo in uh, Uncle Pavel's disputation uh, with uh, Bazarov. The epileptic, or perhaps I should say choreiform, which is a more accurate uh, neurological analogy, the choreiform nature of Russian radicalism is clear from the continuation of the discussion on the matter of principles. Bazarov claims to have no first principles, but the belief that one should have no first principles is itself a first principle, and therefore his philosophy is self-refuting. Again, I'm reminded of the self-refuting philosophy of the logical positivists, who uh, claimed that a proposition was meaningful either if it was by definition or by potential correspondence with an empirically testable state of affairs. Itself a proposition, neither true by definition nor testable empirically, and therefore, by the standards of the argument, itself meaningless. Unfortunately, the incoherence of a philosophy does not make it harmless uh, or lacking in influence, uh, quite the reverse. In the course of the discussion, Mazarov says, we base our conduct on what we recognize as useful. In these days, the most useful thing we can do is to repudiate. So we repudiate. This, of course, horrifies Uncle Pavel, just as the young nihilists of the present time horrify their elders, such as uh, uh, the speaker. Everything Uncle Pavel demands to know everything, replies uh, Bazarov. What? Not only art, poetry, but also, I'm afraid to say it. And Bazarov, with great composure, repeats everything. Surely in Bazarov we can hear the voices of young people in Western society today who claim that their own societies have built, been built on nothing but force, fraud, massacre, injustice, slavery, and so forth. And therefore everything must be swept away as if they were trying to clear a jungle in order to start a plantation, which of course is not a very good idea since a jungle, though luxuriant, to all appearances, often grows on thin and vulnerable soil that swiftly erodes when cleared of its native vegetation. Since all our institutions have been founded on this history of force and fraud, the past existence of which can't be denied, there has of course been force and fraud and all the terrible things I've mentioned, it is necessary to begin again from scratch without respect for or even awareness of the slow accretion of achievement that has enabled us to live as well as we do live now by comparison with uh, most people in history. One must construct too, you know, 
uh, says Arkady's father rather weakly in response to Bazarov. But Bazarov simply brushes him aside and says, that is not our affair. The ground must be cleared first. Then there is the question of whether the nihilists like Bazarov, who are very small in number, can in practice affect any change. Do you think that you can take on the whole nation, asks Uncle Pavel, to which Bazarov replies, a penny candle, you know, set Moscow on fire. This, of course, is a reference to the burning of Moscow in 1812 uh, during Napoleon's invasion. Bazarov says this, a penny candle, you know, set Moscow on fire, not as a warning or as a call to prudence, but as a message of hope. He wants Moscow and everywhere else to be burnt down, raised to the ground, at least metaphorically, so that everything may be built up again on sound foundations, for example, of equality. At this point, I doubt that many people in America and probably many people in other countries, all of which are based more solidly, so it seems, uh, than uh, Tsarist Russia in the 1860s was, will not think of the effect that a very small percentage of the population has had very suddenly on the various countries and how what seemed so stable almost immemorial, now appears extremely fragile. And of course, we cannot read Fathers and Sons without knowledge, which Turgenev himself could not have had, of what was to happen less than 60 years after its publication. It is impossible for us not to regard Bazarov and his nihilism to be a kind of harbinger for the disasters to come, albeit that he himself were not, was not going to experience them. During the Soviet period, indeed, Bazarov was taken to be an unequivocally positive hero. His morality was a slightly weaker version of the morality of Lenin, for whom whatever served the revolution and the establishment of Bolshevik power was good, whatever hindered it was bad. Indeed, morality had no other meaning repudiation of everything else was necessary. For example, uh, the repudiation of normal human decency and kindness, which were regarded as mere petty bourgeois sentimentality, and even the beauty of music. Lenin couldn't listen to a Beethoven sonata because, he said, doing so sapped his revolutionary ardour, precisely as Bazarov might have said or warned. And he did, in fact, find it ridiculous that Arkady's father should be playing the cello at the age of 44, the advanced age of 44. Our knowledge of events subsequent to the publication of Turgenev's great book prevents us, I think, from responding to Bazarov as anything other than a revolutionary prig. Uh, but this was not how Turgenev saw him. On the contrary, he was very sympathetic and in some sense loved him. He is said to have cried as he wrote of Bazarov's death, which is indeed very moving. At the end of his life, Bazarov has found love, which, too late, he realises is more important uh, than philosophy or social revolution, for a world without love would not be worth working for. And since love is achievable in the present world, that world cannot be so totally bad that everything must be swept away 
before starting all over again. Thus we see at base that uh, Bazarov is a tragic figure, not a villain, mistaken but not deeply evil. Again, this might inhibit us from too rapid and gratifying a division of humanity into uh, the good and evil, uh, though this is also not to deny the potentially appalling effects of radically mistaken ideas. Lenin once said that Bernard Shaw was a good man fallen among Fabians, by which he meant, such was his ethic, if ethic it can be called, that Shaw would have been a better man if he had slaughtered his audiences rather than entertained them. Bazarov, by contrast, is a good man fallen into ideology, albeit, of course, that he must have had some effective affinity for ideology in the way that his friend and disciple, Arkady, ultimately did not. Well, I've only uh, touched on some of the depths of uh, Turgenev's book, which is among the best expositions known to me of the inevitable reciprocal, reciprocal imbrication of character and thought and uh, the effect of thought on, on, on politics. Perhaps in 2,000 years, no one will have the faintest idea what Turgenev was writing about. But for now, 160 years later, he remains astonishingly, if disturbingly, contemporary. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Tony. It's a shame that uh, you cannot hear the uh, the applause of the uh, couple of hundred people who are here listening to this wonderful lecture you've given us, both deep and uh, incredibly succinct. You touched on many of the the abiding themes in this novel. We have uh, quite a number of really superb questions here, uh, and I want to get to those uh, fairly quickly, though I want you all to know there in the question queue that we're going to get to as many of these as we can, so keep them coming in, and um, we're, we're not in any particular, you know, time limit here. Uh, but I want, I want uh, by way of beginning our conversation, uh, Tony, to, to dig in a little bit further into Bazarov's standpoint and uh, which of course is the is the standpoint that Turgenev is himself wrestling with uh, it's the standpoint that as you say in so many respects leads to uh, Lenin and Stalin um, and to various forms of burn it all down uh, standpoints in our own time but Turgenev is very, very careful. One of the things you said in your lecture that I thought was um, very rich. You may, sorry, you may hear my dog barking in the background here. This is uh, this is Zoom in all of its glory, folks. Um, uh, you 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 said that uh, you know. He, these are not puppeteers, these characters, not as though he's taking an ideology and just putting in someone's mouth. He's developing a full human person to show where these uh, ideas lead, the way they manifest themselves. Uh, Bazarov is, for, for all the way in which he seems to be a voice of a certain ideological position, is also a a real human being with virtues, with uh, sensibilities. But let's let's just start with this because I want to pick through a few things in Bazarov and see the way in which 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 Turgenev in this in this absolutely masterful novel brings out the limits 
both the truth and the limits in this position. You said earlier in your lecture that that Bazarov was not actually a scientific, but scientistic. And I want to start there with a sense of what you mean by that, and then perhaps we can build on that to better uh, fill out the 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 whole of Bazarov's position. Well, uh, a scientific person is a person who uh, actually knows about science and uh, uses science to discover things about the world. A scientific person thinks that science itself is sufficient to explain everything uh, and and in essence everything is understood bar the shouting i mean there are there are details to be filled in but uh, in fact we, we this scientism is still with us for example uh, in neurosciences many people think that we have finally achieved uh, self-understanding when it's clear to me at any rate that we haven't and we probably never will but uh, Bazarov thinks that science is everything insofar as he indulges in any science as in as far as the book is concerned it, he goes around catching frogs which he's then going to dissect uh, but we know really he isn't going to discover anything this is a, this is more a pose actually than a pose than a real scientific inquiry uh, maybe this is because Turgenev himself wasn't all that uh, knowledgeable about science but but we feel that uh, to, that uh, Bazarov's desire to um, to dissect frogs go around collecting frogs before anyone else is up in the house and then goes and dissects them. Uh, we know he's not going to discover anything that isn't already known. It's a kind of pose. Not in, a, I don't mean by pose um, in the sense that a, a poseur poses, uh, but it is to, um, to reject any other view of life that he does this and, and to shock. This is very interesting because Bazarov claims that he has you know, no principles. They recognize no, no authorities. You bring out in your lecture the contradiction in that, in, that, in that standpoint. He says, I'm thinking here, uh, I hope if above all what comes out of this is that many people will read this novel who've not yet read it. In the 10th chapter of this book, he, he has this... this moment in his in his exchange with Pav, Uncle Pavel, in which he says, he talks about these useless words, uh, even principle is a useless word. Later, he, he denies that even materialism is, a, is a, as a word adequate to his standpoint. So he's, there's this kind of complete refusal of any kind of, while he portrays himself on the one hand as a rationalist, you know, as kind of relentlessly ra rational, he is on the other hand, unable to engage with the intellectual implications of his own position. So he says, for example, that he, he, they renounce all principles, only what is useful is, is um, uh, will they acknowledge. But of course, by what standard is something to be acknowledged as useful? Yeah. That, that, that implies a whole uh, uh, hierarchy of value. Um, similarly, he says that he at least makes the pose of dissecting the frogs, and yet even the pose of dissecting the frogs suggests that there's some good, some knowledge to be gained in this encounter with nature, that you're somehow you're 
knowledge will become more adequate or more uh, realist or more complete or, or more uh, more grappling with the, the 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 truth of reality is something that he surely would want to be a uh, to to champion, and yet he's unable to acknowledge any of those those implications of his own declared position. And the reason I want to to, to get at that is because it, it does seem to me highly relevant to certain uh, moments in our own day, this, this claim that, that we must repudiate everything. He says, everything, you know, everything must be repudiated. And uh, I think just after the, that passage where you, where you, which you beautifully described to us, uh, Pavel says, he says, um, you think we must uh, repudiate everything? He says, you are destroying everything, but one must construct too, you know. And to that, Bazarov replies, that is not our affair. The ground must be cleared first. And he goes on then to say in another passage, you know, we must smash people. We need fresh victims. So uh, what I want to ask you, Dr. Daniels, is about whether, let me first say that Turgenev is very clear that Bazarov, as you say, whom he does not dismiss as a mere ideologue, that Bazarov has some genuine insight into the state of Russia, into the injustice, into certain um, uh, uh, political and familial and other dynamics, uh, that uh, he indeed, his perception of these injustices may indeed be accurate. Uh, but he seems to be suggesting that those, those injustices cannot be remedied from a standpoint of repudiation. And I'd like to ask you what you think are the limits or possibilities of repudiation and, and whether a more constructive standpoint is possible. Well, the two things come to mind. The first is, of course, that Bazarov actually, as you were describing him, uh, it occurred to me that he's very Nietzschean, actually. Nietzschean, uh, Nietzsche wanted to uh, destroy the whole of philosophy and so on, um, uh, and claimed himself to have uh, no first principles, really, and said that there are no facts, there are only interpretations. But whether uh, it is a fact that there, there are no facts, only interpretations, he doesn't, he doesn't question. Um, I think if we look at Turgenev's own life, the fact is that he saw very clearly the terrible things that there were in Russia and was an opponent of them. But at the same time, he valued the civilization of which he had been able to take advantage. So he, he did not want just to clear the ground and start again. But he knew that, that underneath the things that he valued, there was a a subterranean, or well, not even very subterranean, actually, uh, substructure of great injustice. And it was this that was very difficult for him, and in, in particular in Russia, because there was really no tradition of, of gradual reform, and anyone who tried to reform was uh, treated as a kind of uh, violent revolutionary. Although later in the uh, reign of Alexander II, there was real reform. And uh, the, uh, the assassination of Alexander II was a catastrophe. 
he was assassinated on the day on which he was going to grant uh, the first constitution to Russia. And from there, things didn't look back. But there is this... It's very difficult for people to keep in their minds both that there are things worth preserving and there is great injustice in the world. And uh, this is the difficulty that Turgenev himself had personally. So, as you say, he recognised that Bazarov understood that there were things wrong, terribly wrong, with Russia. But his own, but Bazarov's philosophy is in fact extremely weak, because you can't you can't criticize anything unless you've got a standpoint from which to criticize yeah. it, and that that requires uh, principles. Yeah, yeah. In the end, Bazarov is shown to have a contradictory standpoint, uh, exactly as you say, that the the very power of his insight is inert because he won't acknowledge the principles that are implicit in that very standpoint. And that's where the, it seems to me this novel is is such a powerful, powerful overcoming of a, a nihilistic uh, repudiational standpoint because, but, continue. What I, yeah, what I might say, however, is that Uncle Pavel, who's not a fool, uh, doesn't argue against it very well. He doesn't argue very well against Bazarov. He doesn't say, he doesn't point to the logical contradictions in what Bazarov is saying. He 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 merely finds it repellent. I'm so glad you made this point, Tony, because it seems to me this is also uh, highly relevant to our moment. That uh, on the one hand we we have uh, all kinds of burn it all down revolutionaries with who, whose who, whose critiques of injustice are often accurate and powerful and necessary, and yet insofar as one takes a standpoint of critique that will not acknowledge one's own principles, then you're, you have an inert position that is unable to redress the very the very injustices you see. So that is to say that it seems to me Tregenev's position is you can't address injustice by acting unjustly. You have to actually know what justice is and justice must be instantiated in your own remedy to injustice, just as you can't uh, uh, address ugliness by building more ugly things. You can't address unkindness by being yourself unkind. Uh, so he's he's really pointing out the, the inert contradiction, the hypocrisy, as it were, in Bazarov's standpoint. And yet, what's so marvelous here is that the, the, the so-called conservative, Uncle Pavel, it, though you know he has a genuine perception of the goods of rationality and civilization, he's unable to be an articulator of those things in such a way that Bazarov is able to to grasp that, and and I, I think that's clearly one of the crises in our own moment is that yeah. those who call themselves small c conservatives, I don't mean in a political sense. I want to hasten to add, I mean in a broad sense of there being something in the culture of the past that can illuminate our current moment. Uh, those people have shown themselves almost without exception unable to transmit what they see to the young. And so it, it seems to me Turgenev's position is not bought by any means simplistically on Uncle Pavel's side. No. Uh, on the other hand, he, uh, there is also the fact that he, he clearly, um, Turgenev himself, did not believe that justice was the only value. So, of course, it was important 
but it's not the only important thing. So that it might well be true that, for example, St. Petersburg was built by, by the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people, completely, I mean, a huge injustice. But the solution to it is not to pull St. Petersburg down or to say that St. Petersburg is not beautiful. Uh, and so Turgenev values justice, but not only justice. Yes, well, clearly the standpoint, and we'll dig into this as we, our conversation continues, in Turgenev is, is very powerfully non-reductive. He is, in a way, I, I wonder whether you agree with this, Tony, as I have reflected on the novel, which I had, uh, had not read until you offered to give this wonderful lecture, I've been thinking about what the fundamental oppositions are. And it seems to me that, you know, it's it's by no means rationalism versus, you know, the non-rational, because actually in the end, what clearly is the case is that Turgenev proves to be more rational than Bazarov. His observation is more adequate to human nature. Um, Bazarov's pseudo-rationalism proves to be irrational because he's unable to account for, I mean, he is inchoate to himself. He's unable to give an account of the love that eventually he cannot even answer or respond to. So he's, he's actually not the trenchant observer of the world or the 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 master of of observation that he he wants to he wants wants to cl to claim uh, claim to be uh, whereas whereas Turgenev himself uh, the the power of the novel uh, as I think you've you, your lecture brings out beautifully is in the 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 nuance and subtlety of the anal the observation that allows these the truth of these various positions the falsity of these positions to be to be to be revealed but what i wanted to to ask you is is whether the fundamental opposition here is not you know rationalism versus non or irrationalism but in a way it's it's ideology versus openness and so Turgenev is not trying to replace Bazarov's position with some construct, uh, some reductive sense of what justice is, but with a, a, a an over well, a sort of superabundant, brimming sense of the real uh, that somehow we are we are all in and need to answer to. Yeah, and that desiderata are not all uh, achievable, uh, and that uh, they're in conflict, so that. Uh, there is no perfect state for man, and therefore uh, utopian ideas are foolish. And Turgenev didn't, of course, live to see just the disaster that, that would come from trying to, to build a utopia with the idea of perfect justice and so on. So, yes, I mean, it's a profoundly anti-ideological novel. He's not saying that there is some philosophical scheme by which we can achieve a perfect life. On the contrary, uh, anyone reading it would come to the conclusion that that is completely impossible. And it is a great mistake, uh, a terrible mistake, to think that there is. Uh, but we must also remember that there is a generational conflict too, such as we, we uh, have seen many times. There's a uh, just before we move on to our our first question from the audience here, uh, Tony and I want to intersperse a reading a few passages in our our conversation. 
beautifully trans translated by the way uh, Tony and I have both been been reading the version of this text that is translated by Rosemary Edmonds uh, with a marvelous introduction by Isaiah Berlin. And I want to bring out the anti-individual strain here that for all of Bazarov's claim to be the analyst, he he's utterly disdainful of the particularity of nature. And this came out marvelously in your lecture about how the, the, uh, the air has to smell the same uh, to everyone. You know, there's no sense in which there's a home uh, in which we find ourselves. So Bazarov says, he says, in the first place, experience of life does that. And in the second, I assure you, the study of separate individuals is not worth the trouble it involves. All men are similar in soul as well as in body. Each of us has a brain, spleen, heart, and lungs of similar construction. And the so-called moral qualities are the same in all of us. The slight variations are of no importance. It is enough to have one single human specimen in order to judge all the others. People are like trees in a forest. No botanist would dream of studying each individual birch tree. In an age of one size fits all top-down solutions, Tony, um, would you like to make a few uh, remarks about Bazarov? position in relation to particularity and individuality? Well, that again would come uh, from his scientism, uh, because it is true, for example, that most of our physiology is, uh, is very similar. And he would say that we are just physiology. And therefore, it follows that, uh, that the differences between us are very minor. It's a bit like people who say, that we share 99% of our genes with chimpanzees or whatever. People are all, or 70% with snails, uh, and therefore uh, mankind is 70% snail. Um, so he's got that kind of mentality, and uh, unfortunately we know what, it, what, uh, what that kind of idea leads to. Um, but it was very current in his time, and I think it's still quite current. One thing I uh, wanted to note here is how powerfully Edmonds makes this point in her in her introduction to the novel about how Turgenev's. I mean, you you mentioned how Turgenev's novel is itself not rigidly. Uh, it is not itself at all I ideological or rigidly reductive. He's opening things up to the complexity of of reality, and one of the ways one's one one sees this is that he he refuses to coerce his own characters, uh, and he refuses to coerce the reader. I, I was astounded at, at the, the 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 light touch of the novel, the way in which he's he's aiming to depict these positions with sensitivity and observational power and you can make up your own mind though it is at the same time clear that there is uh, Turgenev is acutely aware of the limits of these of the position of Bazarov for example but one of the other ways you see this is is in his depiction of of the natural world this of the of the springtime of the of the birds of the trees of the movement of the sun on the uh, and shadow, and 
it seems as though you know there's that wonderful moment where where Arcadi's father is is outside in a kind of reverie in a kind of contemplation with nature and it seems that Turgenev is suggesting that the human relation with nature is by contrast with Bazarov's standpoint is a window into the richness of the real not a clinical reduction of it. Yes, and and is available to all people and will be available to for them uh, for all time, at least if the whole world is not concreted over. <laughs> and uh, and uh, <laughs> all other living creatures are killed. But um, yes, so there there is something that transcends politics. Politics is not all. Uh, in fact, it's uh, it's. I mean, it's important, but it's not all important. And uh, for Bazarov, of course, he's ultimately motivated uh, by uh, hatred of what already exists, and therefore can't appreciate. I mean, he he can't appreciate uh, the beauty of anything. Uh, I, you could describe a fanatic. Or you could define a, a fanatic as someone who looks at beauty and sees injustice. And Bazarov is of that kind. He's, he's obsessed by the, the, uh, the wrongfulness of, of the world. Uh, and, of course, there is a great deal of wrongfulness, but it's not all that there is in the world. Yeah, Bazarov's standpoint is to perceive the wrongness, but then to advocate d further wrongs. Well, let's let's turn to a, to some questions. There's a number of other things I want to ask you about, and we may even uh, play some music or uh, read some other passages in this this amazing novel. Um, but here we go. Um, we've got lots of questions here. Here is one. You bring up the theme of the connection between rationalism and nihilism in Fathers and Sons. Many see the Enlightenment and rationalism as a serious achievement of the West though others have pointed out that a purely rationalist viewpoint is behind the Marxist and Stalinist projects. And the planning model that would take hold in the 20th century, even now in COVID where statistics and virus cases seem to be the Bible that determines our lives through policies. Furthermore, rationalism has extracted a lot of the character of life out of our lives. Could you comment on the connection between rationalism and nihilism? Well, uh, yes, rationalism is not the same as rationality, of course. It, rationalism is the idea that there is a kind of rational solution to all of life's little problems, uh, whereas nobody can be completely irrational. No, I don't think anybody can be against rationality. Rationalism is the, is the idea that all that is necessary in life is rationality, which is a bit like it is to rationalism is to rationality what scientism is to science. And of course, if you if you believe that there is a rational solution to all human problems, uh, you will believe that you have that solution. And that will, of course, lead to terrible dictatorship. Whether that is quite the same as nihilism, um, I mean, um, 
in a sense, we when we when we think of nihilists now, when we think of nihilism now, we think of people who think that life has no worth, life has no meaning, and uh, I suppose the greatest example is uh, Macbeth, when he says that uh, you know tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow keep creeps on this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. Um, and that's what, what we think of nihilism. Bazarov isn't a nihilist in that sense, because he obviously believes that there is a better world possible. So there, are, there is more than one sense to the word of to nihilism. But that, that, of course, gets at the very contradiction within Bazarov, in which he's, he, he's unable to give an account of the principles according to which that better world could be constructed. So he's, or or moved towards, and that's the 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 fundamental hypocrisy of the position we were talking about a moment ago. Related to this, another question from David Donegan. Can you elaborate on the conflict Bazarov has with the ideas he learned at university regarding nihilism and the real life emotional feelings he has by falling in love with Anna Sergeyevna and how this was tearing at his core values? Well, if you have um, if you have principles which are suddenly or fairly suddenly revealed to you as being not in accord with your real uh, wishes, your real desires, uh, it it is of course very uh, disturbing. And most of us have, uh, have faced have faced that. I think at some time we've had principles which we suddenly realise are inadequate uh, to the situation that we face, and that our desires are actually different from those that our principles tell us that we really ought to have. And most of us uh, have have had and probably still have those kind of conflicts. It's particularly acute, of course, in. Bazarov, because he's made his philosophy the whole focus of his life in a way that most of us don't. And there's something very, uh, in a way, admirable about it. In a way, he's kind of saint, you could almost say. He, he, he forgoes everything that is desirable in life for his philosophy, but then finds at the end he cannot carry it fully he cannot carry it out, and actually something else is much more important than his philosophy. Uh, most of us avoid that by not having a philosophy that entirely dominates our life and dominates our action. There seems to be another uh, alternative there, which is to keep one's philosophy open to the complexity and nuance of life and to have one's ideas revised by the experience of reality, which is surely what philosophy and being rational is. I mean, I think this is the tension with Bazarov is that he proves, though his though his, his, his commitment to a kind of rational standpoint, uh, he has such an ideological rigidity about what he's willing to admit to be real that he's ultimately destroyed by that which he cannot acknowledge as real. And that is, in a way, the standpoint that we see again and again in the Greek tragedies, too, that uh, the very uh, uh, th those things that are real which you will not acknowledge will d destroy you, not externally, but in, in yourself, as, as in the case with Bazarov. We have a number of questions, Tony, coming in. Um, a great deal of... Um, 
gratitude for your work, uh, admiration for your work, some very touching notes here. Um, several questions pertaining to your, your life as a doctor and in relation to the novel. So one person asks about, um, uh, as, a, as, a, as a doctor, can you say more about how Turgenev's writing makes his characters seem real? Uh, well, you've touched on that in that they they are not just spokesmen for ideas. They are whole human beings with the conflicts of whole human beings, and they are individuals. Uh, I can only say that in my uh, uh, in my work, there is always a conflict in a in a um, in a in a medical life. There's always a conflict between seeing people as a case of something and being individuals. Everywhere, I mean, you you want your doctor to recognize the disease in you, which is similar to the disease in other persons. But you, but at the same time, uh, you want him to recognize you as an individual. And a, I think a good doctor uh, manages to balance that, not necessarily by any intellectual process, but does it uh, almost instinctively. And um, so that this is what uh, Turgenev obviously does. I mean, he's not just, he's obviously interested in his characters as individuals, but also not only as individuals. They do stand for something, but they're, they are not just standing for something. I want to relate two questions here, Tony, in my effort to get to as many of these in our time as possible. Another comes back to the question of human nature. It seems, this questioner writes, that the author portrays an idea that truth cannot be ideologically dismissed, as Bazarov seems to try and do. Can we have some sort of confidence that Turgenev reveals nihilism to be at natural odds with human nature in spite of socialism's attempts to the contrary? Well, I think it does show that nihilism is against uh, human nature in the sense that Bazarov falls in love, and love is much more important to him in the end than uh, philosophy, but unfortunately, his nihilistic philosophy, but unfortunately, it's too late. One of the things that it teaches you teaches you is it, that it can things can be too late, and uh, uh, so not everything is reparable, uh, but clearly there's a a conflict between his uh, his nihilism and his real deepest uh, feelings, and that's why, of course, Basarov is not not ultimately a bad man. He's a mistaken man, a man who's made a very serious mistake. But because he is actually capable, in the end, he's capable of love. He, uh, if it hadn't been for the fact that. Uh, he died, he might, have been, uh, he might have been redeemable. He would not have remained a nihilist uh, all his life. There's a real sense of that in, um, gosh, it's, such a, it's, it's just such a beautiful novel. I, I, I've been, been uh, really moved by this portrayal of, of, of Bazarov, his, the humanity of the man that transcends his own position. And there's a beautiful metaphor, I think one of the, great strengths of, of Turgenev, this is the only thing I've read, but one of these just breathtakingly artistic 
aspects of this novel is the way in which he will often use uh, natural contrast or juxtapose moments in nature with mm. uh, moments in the in the human being in the in the soul or in the person. Um, and there's that that wonderful moment, and I, I hope those uh, listening here, if you haven't read the novel, that you um, uh, you'll give yourself the benefit of doing so at some point. On in, in the seven chapter seventeen, there's this moment where where Bazarov is is confronting the fact that against everything he believes about himself, he's fallen deeply in love with this this Odinstov uh, character, um, and he he's unable. This is the the irrational side of his rationalism. He's unable to account for what's happening in himself, and he this beautiful moment where he he gets up and he opens the window. They're in the drawing room and in in their sort of socializing after dinner. Bazarov got up and pushed at the window. It flew open at once with a crash. He had not expected it to open so easily. Also, his hands were trembling. The mild dark night looked into the room with its almost black sky, its faintly rustling trees, and the fresh fragrance of the pure, untrammeled air. This just magnificent sense of the natural world, the way in which his opening of the window, he's overwhelmed by the beauty he didn't expect, by the darkness of the night that he didn't expect, as a metaphor of the ways in which he is himself overwhelmed in this very conversation with his own feelings that he could can did not expect and cannot uh, account for in his conversation with um, this woman that he's, he's fallen in love with. Um, on this topic of uh, uh, human na nature in a fuller, broader sense than Bazarov, is himself able to, to express, but which in a way he is an expression of. Uh, someone writes, uh, Dr. Uh, Joseph uh, writes, uh, good evening, uh, Mr. Daniels. I have been deeply influenced by your work, particularly in your insights into human nature. Taking everything you have experienced and read into account, are you optimistic or pessimistic about human nature? Can we learn from the mistakes that we British, this person clearly writing from the UK, have made by having a more realistic view of human nature. Thank you very much for your time, and I must express deep felt appreciation for everything you have written. Britain is so much the poorer for your retirement from the Birmingham prison and hospital regards. Uh, would you like to, to respond to that, Tony? Uh, am I pessimistic or optimistic? Um, well, so the thing that did uh, make me a little optimistic, not very optimistic, was that I was, uh, when I spoke to my patients, I never said to, I never didn't say to them something that I was prepared to write. And they recognised, uh, I think, they recognised the truth of it. And they also quite liked being uh, talked to as full human beings rather than as vectors of forces. So that I always acknowledged that they, they had made decisions, albeit that they'd made decisions in, in uh, very uh, unfortunate circumstances, but nevertheless, they were decisions. And so they, and they were prepared to recognize that and were actually relieved that someone talked to them as if that were true, 
and they recognize it at once. So that makes me optimistic. On the other hand, we have a very large part of the society now which has a vested interest in treating another part of society as if they were mere objects, and that makes me pessimistic. I don't think human nature is going to change either for the better or for the worse. It will always be more or less the same, but at least within very broad parameters. But I think whether whether realism can overcome the vested interests which ha- which there are in irrealism, in uh, one could almost call it bizarroffism, uh, I'm not quite sure. I'm rather pessimistic about Britain in particular, I must say. So I'm not. I'm not quite sure whether I'm optimistic or pessimistic. Tony, the thing I always love about talking with you is that, perhaps like Turgenev, whom I know you greatly admire, you have a a a very measured realism about the the dark sides of our nature. And yet you yourself are such a, a life-affirming and loving character with your humor and the deep sense of humanity, the, the deep, the, the, the integrity and possibility uh, and respect for the individuals whom you write about and uh, whom you, you encounter. I have the pleasure of knowing you as a, as a friend, so I know these things are, are, are true. It seems to me that that's... Uh, that that is precisely what it, to take that position, as it were, both to be aware of our darkness, uh, but not to surrender to that as a total principle. And to know that our refusal to surrender to that is itself a rational standpoint born of what we know about the nature of ourselves and of of reality uh, broadly is, that is the only uh, antidote uh, to that. And we're going to speak about that a bit uh, later, I, I hope. Um, I want to read um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a little bit some, oh, I'll just do it right now, and then it will come back. There are a number of other questions we're going to get get to. One of the, there are a number of uh, contrasts here. We've talked a lot about Bazarov, but he's not the only character in this wonderful book. You have, in a way, just as uh, you have in uh, Anna Karenina, a kind of fundamental contrast of two couples. Uh, so too, in this, you have a contrast between Bazarov and Odinstov on the one hand, and and uh, Arkady and Katya on the other. And though Arkady, Arkady, I don't, of course, I don't have any Russian. I have no idea how to pronounce these names. Please forgive me, everyone. Um, though Ar- Arkady is um, under Bazarov's spell at the early part and throughout the novel, it turns out that he's not a nihilist, that he right. he has a, a, a fundamental openness to the ways in which he is uh, moved by the world beyond himself, in his father, in his 
burgeoning love with Katya. Indeed, even in his love of, of Bazarov, he at times has to repress himself from saying the things he wants to say so he, to Bazarov because he'll feel like he's not a good nihilist by, by talking about his love or admiration for this man. And, and so too in the kind of uh, final, uh, very sad final conversation that Bazarov has with, with, with Arkady, there are other things he would say, but they would seem sentimental, so he won't say them. And there's that, that kind of denial of what's welling up in him as a human being towards the world. And that to me is what, in a way, is really the, the, the essential character of Bazarov's position. It's that refusal to be open to the way in which the self opens up to the world. That, that is not comprehensible by his declared principles. And, and yet we see in the novel a number of contrasts with that position. And, and beautifully, some of these are given to us in people who are portrayed as very simple in a way, but as having a grasp of deep things that Bazarov himself does not understand. And, um, and two of those people are in fact his parents whom he is human enough to recognize the virtues of, though he's unable to, you might say, give himself over to the truth of their position. He sees their virtues. But there's this just absolutely stunning moment at the, the conclusion of tw chapter 21, where Bazarov has come home after a long period away. His parents are just so touchingly moved by their so touchingly expressive of their love of their son and delighted to have him at home. Uh, and they're fussing over him and they're doing this and they're doing that. And and I think uh, anyone who has had the gift of a loving parent knows what uh, that is like. And any parent who's had the gift of loving a child knows what that is like and the di how different those two positions are too. But there he leaves prematurely after only three days and they're just, they're just absolutely devastated. His, his father is thunderstruck and he reels. He just can't believe his son is leaving. And as they try to put on a brave face, but as the carriage, as the carriage drives away, uh, he has gone, left us, he faltered, uh, gone because he found it dull with us here. I'm a lonely man now, lonely as this finger. He repeated again and again. And each time he thrust out his hand with his forefinger, pointing away from the rest. Then Irina Veslavnia came to his side and pressing her gray head, head to his gray head. She said, it can't be helped, Vasya. Son is an independent person. He's like a falcon that comes when he wills and flies off when he lists. But you and I are like the funguses growing in a hollow tree. Here we sit side by side, not budging an inch. It is only I who will stay with you always, faithful forever just as you will stay with me. Vasily Ivanich took his hands from his face and clasped his wife, his friend, more warmly than he had ever done before, even in their youth. She had consoled him. She had consoled him in his grief. Pardon me, I get emotional reading this uh, beautiful novel. Then later, there's a moment after, uh, it, after uh, Bazarov has died, and his parents are grappling with his death and they they stand together and he Turgenev writes side by side they bowed their heads like lambs in the heat of noonday but the blaze of the noonday sun passes and is succeeded by dusk and nightfall and then the night 
with a return to the quiet fold where sleep, sweet sleep, waits for the tormented and the weary. Six months went by. White winter had set in with the cruel stillness of cloudless frost, with its thick crunching snow, rosy hoar-rimmed trees, pale emerald sky, smoke-capped chimneys. Anyway, he goes on and on here um, in this marvelous contrast of the the way in which the sadness is comp compared to the lambs bowed in this in the heat of sum summer, and then gives way to this contemplative distance of winter. And all of this, uh, in my reading of the novel anyway, we see Turgenev giving us this just deeply movingly sympathetic account of the simple love of the, 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 the parents for the child, this selfless love, as he describes it in the last lines uh, of the novel, uh, which, which outward moving Ness. We see also in the descriptions of nature and the the superabundance of spring, for example, in which the novel the novel begins that that inner reciprocity to to reality itself. I'm wondering, Tony, um, it just having read those passages, if if you have any uh, comments on you were saying how Turgenev is not reductive. It's not. Uh, just a philosophy, like this is the nature of things, but there's this opening up that's constantly coming through the novel. Um, any any thoughts or reflections on 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 that? Well, it just uh, the, the the passages you have read show, in a way, the. I mean, they don't. It doesn't say it explicitly, of course, because he's he's not the kind of man, not the kind of writer, uh, to be explicit but shows you, if you like, the shallowness of all attempts to understand life through some kind of ideology or simple uh, philosophy, such as Bazarov. Bazarov's philosophy is, is actually extremely simple. And we realize from, re from reading um, the end um, that it's, a, uh, um, it's very shallow and that life is much deeper uh, than, than can be caught uh, even by a much more sophisticated uh, philosophy than, than uh, Bazarov's. And that, uh, well, as uh, I suppose uh, Goethe said, uh, uh, grey is theory, but green is the tree of life. And, um, and this bears that out. I'm going to move back to a few. Thank you, Tony. I'm going to move back to a few questions uh, from the audience. We'll go for a few more minutes if you don't uh, don't mind. There's so many uh, rich things to uh, speak about here. Here is a question. Um, you contrasted Turgenev's comparatively oblique and elusive expression of his worldview within his fiction with Bernard Shaw's more direct and didactic habit. Isaiah Berlin's Romance Lecture on Fathers and Children, which is a, in the introduction of this book here, also observes that Turgenev is far less forthcoming in his views than, say, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky. Can you say a little more about the dangers and possibilities, aesthetic and philosophical, for effecting social change or moving individual readers of being more or less direct in the expression of a worldview through fiction? 
Well, I think the if you can affect uh, large numbers of people through fiction in a very direct way, the chances are it's a very bad fiction um, and not a very good book. Lenin's favourite novel, for example, was Chernyshevsky's uh, What is to be Done. And uh, it's an atrocious book, but it's very didactic as to what, uh, what the situation uh, requires. I... Uh, as for Tolstoy, I think he's probably best, almost entirely best, when he's not, when he's not obviously pointing to some kind of political uh, or philosophical uh, point. And Dostoevsky is, to my mind, most important in in establishing that there are very deep currents sometimes of evil in people and that again he's he he obviously believes uh, that there is no uh, there is no ideology that will save uh, mankind no secular ideology but unfortunately he does have some very nasty ideas uh, dostoevsky um i think uh, i think turgenev is actually the most civilized of them um, uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. No, I don't mean to interrupt you, Tony, at all. No, 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 um, no, no. There are a number of questions that may be related here. One person asks, what is the difference between ideology and real thought? Uh, ideology is, uh, I think, the preemption of understanding, the belief that you understand everything uh, from the point of view of a single or very small number of principles and that you claim complete understanding uh, before I, I don't believe there is any such thing as a, a complete understanding uh, but you claim complete understanding and we've seen several examples of this marxism is a a kind of a claim to complete understanding freudian freudianism was behaviorism uh, was uh, neurosciences Neurosciences are taking over that uh, that view, so uh, I think that's the main difference. Perhaps the it's the closing of the mind in the belief that you have already understood uh, the most fundamental questions, and that all, if anything, remains uh, to be filled in. It's just a few details. A related question comes in here about the. Uh, it begins with a, a, a note of gratitude to Tony. This reader said, uh, says that in her reading that the characters demonstrated a lack of self-examination or self-reflection and uh, you know, not failing to examine the premises of their, their actions. And this, the, the questioner concludes with this question, how do we teach ourselves and others to do this? That is to, to examine our own positions. Um, uh, that's a very difficult question. Um, we can be helped, I think, by reading people like Dr. Johnson, uh, who said, uh, who often began, he who examines the motions of his own mind, that's what we infrequently do. So we don't actually examine ourselves. But how you're actually taught to do it, I don't know. How you actually learn to do it, I don't know. 
other than by, I suppose, reading uh, reading uh, literature. But I, uh, I have no solution to, or no answer to that question. Well, I'm going to ask you another unanswerable question then. Um, now that we've 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 got started with these. These dynamics, writes one questioner, Tony, are ubiquitous now, including in my own family with my daughter's uh, BLM sympathies. What is the antidote when our children reject their parents completely by alienation? Gosh, this is heartbreaking. Such as my daughter manifested in the destruction of the family unit today. You alluded in your 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 lecture to the the ways in which this dynamic between generations and and specifically as it's animated by the the by a kind of absolute demand of certain positions uh, leads to fragmentation. This questioner uh, has really put her finger on something very uh, personally rich that we perhaps have all experienced. Tony, what did what advice or reflection can you offer us on how to engage in the midst of um, these absolute demands that can so easily be alienating of of the things that we love and the people whom we love? Well, the first thing is I think people shouldn't actually despair because this doesn't necessarily go on for the rest of a person's life. I mean, there are people do grow out of things. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure most of us have grown out of something or other. So, uh, so it's not uh, it's not that there's no hope. Children often do go back to their parents. Uh, you remember what uh, what um, Mark Twain said. You know, when I was uh, 19, I thought my father was completely ignorant. At the age of 21, I was surprised to find out how much he'd learned. And, uh, and uh, so I, I don't think there's need for uh, despair because things will change. Um, I'm, I hope that most fanatics, most uncompromising people will learn to compromise in the end. As to how to deal with this, my own technique increasingly, it's taken me a long time to realise this, is not to engage in the argument in the first place and try to let it uh, wash over you. And with a bit of luck, uh, if you if you don't respond uh, too much, then uh, the other person loses interest. But once you start arguing, you do become like Uncle Pavel and you start... Uh, saying illogical things yourself, so um, those are two things. But it, I can't, I can't say that there's a guarantee of success. Uh, some fanatics remain fanatics throughout their life, uh, but most probably moderate. So there, there is. I would say there's hope. Actually, it, it's very painful, and it might take a few years, but. Uh, uh, but uh, the daughter will probably come mm. back. That's the uh, that's that's uh, there. You go with your marvelous optimism again. That uh, the human mind is uh, somehow uh, capable of coming to uh, a deeper grasp of what's real. Uh, if only well, I've made lots of mistakes in thinking that uh, this adolescent is so awful. There's no hope for him. Um, you know, he's he's. Uh, 
is obviously going to end up with a life imprisonment or something. And uh, I'm surprised a few years later to find that he's a very nice chap and uh, has changed very fundamentally. And that change can occur surprisingly uh, late in life. So, so I am... I mean, I don't want to be like Pollyanna. I don't want to say this happens in every case, but it it probably happens in more cases than uh, than it doesn't happen. I don't think anyone's going to accuse uh, uh, Theodore Dalrymple of uh, Pollyannaism, um, <laughs> but uh, I think you are articulating Tony wonderfully the the, if I may put it this way, the principle that's at work in the novel, which is the way in which our reductions are reprimanded by reality itself. If we're open to seeing its complexity, we can move deeper into it. And that's the, essentially what you see with Katya and Arkady. Um, it's what you, you, you might have seen with Bazarov had he not died. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful, sensitive depiction of him as, as still having in himself, despite his ideology, the possibility of, of transcending it. There's another question here that is on a similar note. Um, you, I think it's very good the way you've said that there are times when you, it's not that one is rejecting argument, it's that there's times that argument isn't possible. It's not the mode of engagement that's most useful. Um, uh, this questioner asks, what strategies could be used today to fight back on the radical movements, both on left and right, in a way that would bring love, peace, and justice to the world instead of causing more anger and polarization? Clearly a question at the heart of the yes. novel. Well, I'm not sure that uh, love, peace, and uh, what was the other thing? Justice, I think it is. Justice, oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I don't think the world will ever be a place of love, uh, peace and justice uh, uh, completely. And I wouldn't aim at trying to bring about uh, perfect love, peace and justice. I think it's important to try and get people to appreciate what actually exists. And, I, and that, of course, is much easier said than done. I was very impressed it once in Brazil. I went to a school, it wasn't in the poorest area. It was not a rich school. And what the teachers were doing was, were, I don't know with what success, but what they were trying to do was to get the children to look around them and see how marvelous the world was. How much more, how much more marvelous it was actually than what they were seeing on their uh, telephone screens and other screens. And so they were trying to interest them in the natural world, which, of course, in, in Brazil is extremely abundant. Um, so it's a, an attempt to try and get people to appreciate what actually exists. Unfortunately, our educational system doesn't seem to be doing a very good job as far as that is concerned. <laughs> but, uh, well, that, that leads to a question, and we won't go on uh, too much longer here, though. Now that we have you here on a roll with all these questions, I'm, I'm loath to, to close off too quickly. Um, how can the youth, this questioner asks, this is a topic on education, Tony, how can the youth best educate themselves in the humanities today? Most of the universities seem to have been slowly moving away from holding truth and beauty as their primary values and seem to have shifted their focus towards political problems, sometimes in a biased way. Uh, yes, well, I suppose uh, 
people should go, instead of studying uh, history, they should go and study entomology and then uh, become, uh, if they're interested in history, amateur um, amateurs of it rather than uh, try and do it for a degree. Because as far as I, I know, I'm, I'm not a university type, but as far as I'm aware, uh, the university humanities departments have been completely uh, destroyed from within by uh, by political correctness, by uh, political obsession, I should say. And uh, my own view is that, uh, for example, literary criticism is is possible only outside the universities. The only people who write interesting literary criticism are not in universities. On on the whole, I mean, I'm sure the, uh, that there must be exceptions. But um, uh, I think I think it's a question of uh, parents trying to uh, help children rather than expect universities or schools to do anything. Because, as far as I understand, I'm, I'm I might be exaggerating, uh, but there's no hope for uh, university uh, departments of humanities. That's a sobering I'm, standpoint, but it is. Uh, you know, o o only someone who's not paying any attention at all would, I think, or who is themselves in the grip of a uh, very totalizing ideology would maintain that what is really the heart of Bazarov's position uh, is not, in fact, really a very dominant standpoint in uh, our culture and in the humanities. Uh, we see this everything from the ugliness of our architecture to the darkening of the horizon of what we can become of human beings to the suppression of essential human activities like freedom of thought and speech. Um, but above all, for that darkening of uh, the possibilities, that, that degradation of the possibilities for how we can interact with each other, it, it seems to me that the the sort of neo-Marxism or Marx, the, 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 the reductivist materialism that, that Bazarov, Bazarov champions is in fact a, a very, very dominant standpoint in, in our in our own world, certainly in, in many universities and in the humanities, um, uh, especially. And if if anything, this humble little initiative uh, with your wonderful lecture and our conversation is meant to show that that there's another way, as Turgenev himself, um, uh, as Turgenev's novel itself shows. I am going to ask you uh, one more question, and then I, we're going to uh, conclude with. Um, I'm going to play a little music in conclusion, and then we can we'll, we'll just have a moment or two to uh, to 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 conclude our back and forth. Here we go. Um, the final question I want to ask you here is uh, about rebuilding. Um, it seems that there is a fascination in humans with destruction. Why do you think this seems to be stronger than the need to rebuild? And I would ask, uh, in addition, do you think it is stronger? Well, first of all, uh, uh, iconoclasm has a very long history, as we all know. And if we examine ourselves, uh, I think we, in a small way, we all understand the attractions of destruction. At least I do. So that if I'm in a... I have, to, I have to restrain myself when I'm very angry not to throw a plate at the wall. And, uh, and uh, somehow the destruction of the plate, I feel, uh, would relieve me. 
So destruction, and I remember as a child taking croquet mallets to a radio that was in the shed and smashing it to bits. And when I look back, how much I enjoyed it. And I'm reminded of uh, when I was, I happened to be in Panama when there were riots going on. And it was perfectly obvious to me how much people enjoyed the riots. There's nothing, there's nothing as pleasurable to some people as the sound of a brick going through plate glass. And I think there is something in human nature. Maybe I'm, maybe nobody in the audience has experienced anything like this. As for construction, unfortunately, our present mode of construction is destruction. I mean, to construct is to destroy. You can see this in many cities, in the city that I am, Paris, where it's less bad than in London, but still it's pretty bad. Every single building constructed from the Second World War has done something to uglify the city. And it can't be that this is just accidental or that nobody's noticed. Uh, so there is a... Uh, uh, there's a destructiveness. Uh, I, I would say our architects are worse than uh, worse than um, ISIS or the Taliban in this respect. In the in the sense that they've destroyed much more than ISIS or Taliban have done. So, I think the impulse to destroy is very strong, and it's particularly strong in our era, perhaps because we have a kind of exhaustion of our own uh, cultural tradition that you can see in music, uh, that you can see in architecture, even in literature. And if you can't, if you have no capacity to create, you can at least destroy. Before we conclude, two last things here. Tony, you've just been speaking uh, about the the will to destruction, uh, what does it mean to create? I mean, we're I think we're all overwhelmed with the alienation, the 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 sense of of uh, tearing it all down, uh, uh, and just the 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 grim. Um, gruel, the, the thin gruel we're often expected to live on. And, you know, of course, we here at Ralston College are engaged in, a, in an effort to, to build something new. Um, but I, I, I want to conclude our discussion by asking you about what it means to live in a more affirmative standpoint, not um, denying or in any way suppressing the injustices or uh, uh, uglinesses of the present, uh, but rather to counteract those uh, from a positive standpoint. Um, well, I'm not sure I have any prescriptions, but... Uh, I've been more of a diagnostician than a uh, than uh, have any therapeutics to offer. Um, what I I've just been thinking about uh, the urge to destruction, and part of it comes from the inflamed individualism of our times, 
And I can see this in uh, Paris, for example, before the First World War, uh, much architecture was extremely good. And what you see on the buildings is a very little plaque which just gives the name of the architect. It's a very small thing and you wouldn't notice it and you don't look at the building and think, that's a work by Monsieur Dupont, but it says Dupont architect. And it's obvious to me that at that time, architects understood uh, that a building was not was part of a collective, part of a, uh, a collective endeavour. But with the inflamed individualism of our time, that is no longer uh, possible for architects, or they, don't, they want to mark uh, their cities. So I think we have to try and get over this, this kind of individualism. But how we do it, I, I, I can't really say. This is inflamed individualism. I'm all in favour, of course, of the freedom of the individual. But the, the strange thing is we, have, we live in a state of extreme individualism without individuality. Well, that is, of course, the, uh, the, the, the position of, uh, in a way, of, of Bazarov, the inability to actually be an individual. I mean, to to be a more a f more fully realized individual would be for him to embrace his love for Odinstov and his friendship with Arkady and his and the and the principle of reciprocity with his parents. Um, so he'd actually be a, a a fuller individual for acknowledging this inner reciprocity to things rather than the closing down of of ideology. Um, well, just before we conclude, I I, I thought that um, for those that one thing that might be nice as a way of concluding this this uh, this event, this conversation with all of us uh, spread around the world in in uh, uh, in our cars and zoom rooms and and uh, uh, iPhones or whatever it is, would be to um, to try and give an example in a, in a non dialogical form of what that openness might look like. And there's this beautiful moment in the novel where Arkady and Bazarov are out in the garden talking and they hear a cello being played through the window and, and uh, it's playing Schubert's, uh, playing a, a Schubert song, uh, just the melody. It says he's being played sort of emotionally, um, playing it with feeling um, and the melody flowed sweet as honey through the air. And uh, this produces in Bazarov this disdain. You know, your father's far too old to be playing the cello. He's, I think he says he should, he should sort of know better kind of thing. Um, and, uh, and, and then right after that, Bazarov exhorts Arkady to give his father something sensible to read. And he gives him uh, a Buchner's, you mentioned Ludwig Buchner's uh, Stoll und Kraft, or I don't know if it's Kraft und Stoll, uh, German German work of materialism, um, which you can easily get on the internet for those of you who are interested in, in uh, engaging with that that work. So you have this kind of contrast on the one hand of Buchner's work as the this ideological position that Bazarov is advocating, which is a kind of a uh, a closing down to the rich possibilities of life, and then you have the Schubert on the other hand as as a kind of um, symbol or moment of the of a kind of openness. And so I'm just going to play, I happen to find a lovely recording of not that particular uh, Schubert 
uh, a song, but another uh, Schubert uh, leader uh, adapted for cello and piano. And I will uh, play you, it's about four minutes, and then we'll uh, conclude uh, our conversation very expeditiously after that. But I thought this might be a nice way for us to conclude our chat.
Sorry, I had to get that music stopped there after it. I had a hard time getting it stopped after I started it. Uh, isn't that a metaphor for how we hope such things will go? Um, uh, Tony, I want to, uh, before we uh, con uh, conclude, conclude, just give you a chance to uh, make any concluding remarks you might like to make. Uh, you've been so gracious to write this brilliant lecture for us and to give us the benefit of your your time and your long uh, and deep insight into human nature uh, and into this uh, wonderful work of literature. Is there anything you'd like to, to say to uh, those listening before we conclude? Uh, I don't really think I have anything more to say, except that I hope that those who um, haven't read the book will read the book and that they will find it as uh, inspiring uh, as uh, as obviously Stephen and I have found it. Uh, Tony, uh, thank you um, very much, all of you, for joining us, and T Tony for your uh, brilliant lecture and uh, lovely engagement this afternoon. To all of you, until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's episode was a recording of a live event, a lecture by and a discussion with Dr. Anthony Daniels, also known as Theodore Dalrymple, on Turgenev's 1862 novel, Fathers and Sons. Daniels has lived a richly interesting and adventurous life, living and working and traveling through Africa, Latin America, North Korea, and the slums of England. Daniels has written about 30 books, many under pseudonyms, most often Theodore Dalrymple. You might begin with Life at the Bottom, The Worldview That Makes the Underclass. Other titles include Coups and Cocaine, Two Journeys in South America, The Wilder Shores of Marx, and Our Culture, What's Left of It, The Mandarins and the Masses. We love hearing from you, our listeners, so please feel free to leave us a comment or to send us a note. If you'd like to join our next online event or be kept in the loop for other announcements, subscribe to our newsletter at www.ralston.ac. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.